0: You uh, have your Bibles, want you want to crack those open. And if you don't have one with you, there should be one in a seat back around you. And as I said, there should be hopefully a bookmark to get you uh, towards the back into James. Uh, if not, it should get you close. You're going to the back of the Bible, Hebrews, then James. Uh, as you're turning there and get yourself situated, I would like to thank everybody who was involved with last week. Last week we uh, changed things up a little bit. We went outside. We went uh, down the street, down uh, to Alcott College Prep to do church outside with our friends and brothers and sisters at New Life Community Church. And it was a great day. It was a little hot, but it was a great, wonderful day. Um, thank you for everybody who helped set up, for everybody who was part of making the service happen, for teardown, and even just for coming and being part of that. I know uh, it changes things when we change our normal rhythms and routines. It can be kind of uncomfortable. Thank you for being uncomfortable. Uh, it was awesome. I had a great time. Uh, I know Pastor Chad and uh, he had a great time, and we were talking about it, and it was it was a lot of fun. So um, uh, if you enjoyed it, uh, that's good because I think we're going to do another one before the end of the year. If you didn't enjoy it. We're going to do another one before the end of the year, so uh, you can have another chance to enjoy it, and it won't be as hot, hopefully, but it's Chicago weather, so we never know. But uh, thank you. For everybody who came out and was part of that, thank you very much. So we're going to jump in this morning, Uh, last last time we were together in this building, in this room, we were in finishing up the uh, chapter three of the book of James, and it was the difference between two types of wisdom, the false wisdom of the world and the wisdom that comes from God, false wisdom versus true wisdom, false wisdom being grounded in jealousy and selfishness, true wisdom being grounded in peace and purity, and false wisdom being devoid of God's influence and presence, whereas true wisdom begins and is grounded in God. And so this separation of wisdoms, these two combative ideas are going to carry on into this morning's passage, into chapter 4, as we see the reality of false wisdom seep into what happens when it seeps into the Christian community and the damage it can do. And in contrast, for the person in relationship with God, there is a different way of viewing our relationship and even our own heart's and mine. So that's what we're going to do. We got a, a big chunk of meat to cut through this morning. So we're going to pray and we're going to get to work. So please bow your heads uh, and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today and for this chance to gather and to be here in this place as your people, as your representatives on this earth. Uh, gathering this morning to worship you, to celebrate you, to hear from you. God, we come to you today looking for hope and grace and to hear from you, looking for some stability because you are the solid rock. The psalm says you will set our feet on a rock. You will make our steps secure. You bring stability in the chaos of this world. Lord, we delight in you and in your will. Help us to enjoy you and enjoy your word. God, we know how good you are, that you do not restrain your mercy and your steadfast love and faithfulness from us, that you are our help and our deliverer. And so, God, we come to you this morning looking to hear from you. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to comprehend, hearts to believe, and hands and feet to respond to what you have for us today. God, we thank you and praise you. Amen. All right, so we are going to be in James 4. This is a good day to have your Bibles open because, like I said, there's a lot going on here. So we're going to be in James 4. I will read through it, and then we will uh, go into it. So James 4, starting in verse 1. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers and sisters. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? There's a little tone change there. If you've been with us in James, there's a little bit of a tone change there. We'll get into it. Right at the top, I want to remind us, who is, who is James writing to? Because he's not writing to random people. It's not just a general collection of people who have some like-minded ideas. The very beginning of this letter, James 1 says, James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers and sisters. Over and over, and even in this passage, we hear him refer to the brothers, to the brothers and sisters, to the collection of Christians. People who have proclaimed their faith in Jesus. People who say, I have put my faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. I have been given a new heart, a new mind, a new passion, a new desire. I am no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Those people are fighting and quarreling with each other. Now, there are times to fight and argue and quarrel, right? Scripture tells us, be angry, but do not sin. You can argue, you can fight, you can quarrel, you can debate. There are instances and situations when it's needed and good and right to do. But what James is talking about here is not one of those times. It is not good and helpful. What's happening here is because the false wisdom of the world has seeped into the heads and hearts and culture of the people. Jealousy and selfish ambition. He says in verse 2, you want and you don't have, so you murder and take. I probably isn't actually talking about like killing sprees happening within the church, but rather James is once again using his brother's language from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5.21. You have heard it said to those from those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. James uses the language he does because he wants to show and emphasize the point he is making for them to understand the depth of what is happening with the hate that is in their hearts for one another. You covet, you lust, you get jealous, and so you fight and quarrel. You're so concerned about what they have over there. We've all heard this phrase, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. Your grass could be greener if you watered it and mowed it and fed it. If you weren't constantly comparing and moaning and groaning about what you don't have and what someone else does have, why does it make us so angry? Why does it rile us up so much that someone else has something nice? That something good happened to that neighbor, that coworker, that family member or friend? Why do we get so caught up in what is happening for others and take it so personal? Because we believe it's not fair. I work hard, I'm smart, I'm kind, I'm nice, I do what I'm supposed to do, and then some. Why is it happening for me? What about me? What about you? Because everything you have is a gift given to you by God. Even before talking about the particular ways God has blessed and provided and given to you specifically, think about what they call common graces. I was with a group of pastors this week, and we were talking about just – we spent time before our meeting just talking about what are the things we are thankful for in relation to God, about who God is, what God has done, what what are the things that we love about him. And somebody brought up his creativity, and, and just talking about, like, color and taste – God didn't have to make the world beautiful. He didn't have to give us color. He didn't have to make pizza taste good. He could have just been bland and we didn't know any different. But he gave us flavors. He gave us color. He gave us sound. He gives us rain. He gives us the air that we breathe, everything that we have. God didn't have to, but he made this world creatively and beautifully. The intricate, interesting aspects of creation is a gift and a revealer of the character and person of God. We all get to experience it, the just and the unjust, the righteous and the unrighteous, Christian, non-Christian. It's not about what you deserve. That's why it's called grace. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. If we only got what we actually deserved, we would experience and have to try and endure the perpetual judgment and wrath of God on us for our sins. Because that's what we actually deserve due to our sin nature and perpetual rebellion against God amazing grace how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me it wasn't that we won over god with our kindness or tricked him with our cleverness it is grace that we have the existence that we have and it is grace that we have been given the free gift of salvation through faith in the life death burial and resurrection of jesus christ so before we start to bemoan the unfairness of life How about we remember that it is because of the grace of God that we have this life to begin with. We get so caught up with what is and isn't fair in our eyes that we either never stop and think, man, I should really pray and ask God what he wants me to do here, how he wants me to move. Rather, we are just motivated by that person has that thing, so I want it, so I'm going to work towards that. We never actually stop to think, maybe I should involve God in this decision. Or we don't ask him at all. Or we don't ask him with righteous motives, is what James says in verses 2 and 3. It's not out of a delight in God that we go to him with our wants. It's out of a want and covetous notion. You ask wrongly, James says. You ask wrongly. You ask not to be blessed so that you can be a blessing to others and give glory to God, but rather so that you can spend it on your own passions. God knows the desires of our hearts. He knows what's really going on. You can't fool him. You can fool a lot of people. You can't fool God. And yet we try, don't we, over and over again. We think we can fool him or trick him or hide something from him or better yet, butter him up somehow with who we are and the good things that we can do. You know that phrase, what do you buy for the person who has everything? Well, the same could be said for us and God. What are we going to bring God to impress him? He is the everlasting, perfect, holy, righteous creator and sustainer of all existence. You think your niceness is the thing that he's missing? That's the thing that, oh man, I can't believe I didn't have that. It's the equivalent of being sent to the White House. You're going to go meet the most powerful person in the country and to win him over, to make him like you, I want you to stop at 7-Eleven beforehand, grab some snacks and bring it to him. As if we can bring something that's going, that he couldn't get for himself. But that's how we take our interactions with God. If we can just impress him, if we can just show him, just convince him, and maybe in turn convince ourselves, then we can get what we want. And so we bring him the spiritual equivalent of road trip food to God as if that's the thing that's going to win him over. That'll get us what we want. And that's just it, though. It's about getting what we want. Not what we deserve, not what we need, not what is best for us, but this is what I want in this moment right now. God, give it to me. what What we want is most often in conflict with what is best for us or what we need, which God already knows. And so these wars and these quarrels, these battles rage on within us, and then it bleeds out into our relationships with one another, and ultimately what we are doing is creating conflict between us and God. That's what James says in verse 4. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Again, you hear this change, right? If we've been with us for James, James, it's been a lot of my brothers and sisters, hold on, stay steadfast. and It's been very encouraging. Chapter 4, James kind of lets it go. You adulterous people, not idolatrous, you adulterous people. You promise-breaking, unfaithful people us. We make promises to God. God, if you'll give me this. Lord, if you get me through this situation, if you provide this thing for me, I will devote myself to you. I will give more. I'll do better. I'll be better. In the moment we make these promises, we make these promises knowing full well we're not going to keep them. We make promises in the morning we know full well we're going to break by the end of the night. We make promises while we're in the darkness in the hard stuff, but as soon as light breaks and we can see again, we change our tune. He says friendship with the world is enmity with God, conflict with God. He talks about friendship here, and the idea of friendship, I think, for us Today in our culture and our time is a bit lost because because of the Internet, because of technology in general, we have connections with people all over the world. Right. We have convinced ourselves that we are friends with all sorts of people because we see pictures and videos that they post online, even though we haven't had a conversation with that person in days, weeks, months, years, maybe even ever. What used to be called stalking. Now it's uh, online friendship. In the Bible, you didn't really have you didn't move like. Throughout these times, like, your family, your land, where you were was generational. You didn't really go anywhere. You lived in the same place your parents lived, your grandparents lived for generations. And everybody did that. So everybody knew everybody. Everybody's families were intertwined. Everybody knew everybody else's stuff. Everyone else knew you. You knew everyone. Relationships were deep and invested. Oftentimes you shared some of the land, and so you cultivated. You worked together. It was much more relational back then. You were known, and you knew others in a way that we have lost over time. Friendship wasn't this fleeting thing. It wasn't this thing, well, I'm friends with them now, maybe six months from now. Maybe they'll move away. We don't know if we'll stay friends. This had generational bonds built into it. But for us, it's more about like, well, I've interacted in some form or fashion with this person, and so now we're friends. James is saying, to have an intertwined, driven, deep relationship with the world will put you at conflict with God. And here's how it plays out. We we want something. It's an item. It's an experience. It's a relationship. Whatever it is, we see it, we want it, and we're mad somebody else has it. We're mad at that person, we're mad at the situation, we're mad at our circumstances, circumstances, and eventually that rolls into we're mad at God because he didn't give it to us. And so instead of being content and trusting that God knows what is best for us in every mo- moment, we choose something else. We choose to do things our way. We choose the false wisdom of the world, and it makes promises to us. It shows us from all the right angles just how good and strong and helpful and steady and secure it is. How much better it is than what God can offer us. Because God's promises, the ones that are in the Bible, man, that book's outdated. It's misogynistic. It's restricting. The world looks, and the world will say, look how strong, look how tough and secure you can be without God. How free you can be. But in reality, the wisdom of the world is as strong and tough and secure as a playing card. It is built on lies and manipulation. This is why James laid out the difference between false and true wisdom, because one is grounded in dissatisfaction and distrust in God versus being content and trusting and relying on God. One's fruit is jealousy and selfishness, while the other is pure, peaceable, and gentle. These things are a perpetual conflict with one another, because true wisdom is about glorifying God, trusting God, enjoying God, while the other one is about how do you gratify yourself. And when your satisfaction, when you satisfying the cravings of and desires of your heart is the ultimate object of your decision making, what you have done is made yourself your own God. And at the same time, you have put yourself at war with the true God of the universe. James is saying here, look, pick a lane. You can't have a friendship with God, a deep connection, an intimacy with God, and that same kind of relationship with the world. These things are at war with one another. Elijah said the same thing on Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. If Baal is God, follow him. Jesus said the same thing in Matthew 6. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Stop trying to play both sides. Because here's the difference between God and the world. The world doesn't care about you. It doesn't care what happens to you. God does. That's what he says in verse 5. He yearns jealously for us. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. That word jealous, it's not how we think of jealous. It's not wrapped up in fear and insecurity. God is neither afraid nor insecure. This isn't about God lacking anything. James is saying God is the one who gave you life. He gave you breath. He made you and he knows you and he formed you and he designed you specifically. He made you with a purpose. The Westminster Catechism says, what is the ask the question, what is the chief end of man? And the answer in that catechism is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's what we are made to do. That's the purpose of life, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And because we are made to glorify God and enjoy him forever, we just said we can't do that with divided attention. We can't be friends with the world and be in a relationship with God. He wants all of our heart, all of our devotion, all of our mind, all of our strength. You might hear that and say, well, that sounds greedy, arrogant, a little narcissistic, and conceited. He wants all of us because he knows if we aren't fully in, if we are halfway in our devotion, then the part that is committed to God will be ruined and distracted and separated by the part that isn't connected to God. It will be ruined and it will be ruined by the part that isn't devoted to him. A rotten apple spoils the bunch. Spiritual mold will spread. Not only does that affect our relationship with God, but it ruins our testimony and relationship with others here, which is what we are supposed to be doing, right? Shining a light that glorifies God. So God is jealous of us jealous for us because he loves us. He wants us to grow in him. And also because it is his name, his glory, and his glorification at stake when we are trying to do some kind of moral tightrope walking where we want to be friends with the world. We want what our heart desires, our passions, our lusts, what we crave. And we also try and want to show up and have this relationship with God because we know he'll take care of us and provide for us. And we try and do this balancing act. But it's his name, it's his glory that's at stake when we try and do that. He gave you the life and purpose, and he wants you to live into that purpose, to know him and delight in him and enjoy him as you glorify him in all that you do. But we don't. We refuse. We fight, and we quarrel, and we argue, and covet, and lie, and cheat, and steal, and make adulterous decisions, and our promises to God are a house of cards built in the Windy City. We go round and round, just like the Israelites did. The Israelites would walk with God, let him lead them and guide them. And everything would be fine until eventually they'd get distracted and led into sin, led into some idol, idol worship. And everything would be horrible, and they would go very bad, and they'd cry out for help because everything became the worst. And then God would show up and take care of them and forgive them and bring them back into, himself, into a relationship with him. And they'd be thankful and so devoted, and they'd walk with God again, and everything would be good until it happens again and again and again and again. You ever feel like you can't bring a certain sin to God? You can't confess a certain sin to God, not because you think the sin's too bad or you're embarrassed by it, but rather it's because you think, I've confessed this to God too many times. I've brought this same thing up over and over again. He's tired. Ty- He's got to be tired of hearing it from me. Too often we find ourselves chained onto a horse on the world's worst merry-go-round, constantly wrestling with wanting to do what is right, wanting to glorify God, wanting to do what is good, but over and over again finding ourselves coming back to and giving into the thoughts and actions and inactions that we know are fleeting, temporary, physical enjoyment. And those same things are doing foundational, structural damage to us spiritually over and over we choose our way over god's way thanks for the cross jesus thanks for the salvation thing but i got it from here my experiences take precedence my desires supersede what some old book tells me what i should and shouldn't do so i'm going to find something and someone and some voice and some community that's going to let me do whatever i want to do because god if you were truly good I have this desire in my heart, and if you were truly good, you would give it to me. So clearly, you either aren't powerful enough or you aren't good enough to give me what I deserve. And what is God's response to all of this? To this seemingly endless cycle of rebellion and destruction and pursuit of self-gratification, this continuous adulterous relationship we find ourselves in with God. What is his reaction? How does God respond to that? It's verse 6. But he gives more grace. That's the gospel message. That God came to earth to make a way to offer a new relationship between us and him. We couldn't do it. We couldn't earn it. We couldn't make it happen. So God decided he would do it. He would make it happen. Through Jesus, that way has been made. The bridge has been built, the fear, the worry, the guilt, the shame, sin, all of it taken care of by Christ at the cross. All the reasons, the excuses, the barriers, the things you think that are keeping you from a relationship with him, none of them are more powerful than Jesus and his cross. He gives more grace. No matter your struggle, no matter your sin, no matter all of the sins that you have all rolled up into one big one, no matter what it is, no matter the sins you have committed or the sins that have been committed against you, there's more grace to be had. There's more room at the table. There's more room in the family picture for you. There's more of God and his grace to go around. The gospel is the good news that regardless of who you are, nothing excludes you. None of it can keep you from the love of God through Jesus Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Not a thing. If you come looking for Jesus and his grace, he will show up. And nothing you have done, are doing, will do can stop him from loving you, forgiving you, and welcoming you into the family of God. You can't outsin God's grace. There is more of it to be had. In Psalm 130, verse 7, it says, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. Steadfast love, loyal love, unconditional love, never going to stop, never going to end, I ain't going anywhere kind of love. And with him is plentiful redemption, more grace, more than enough to cover any and every sin, no matter what you have done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what you continue to do, there is more grace to be had. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, not for us to use it as, as an excuse to do what we want, but rather that when we sin, we know that is not the end of the story. The Israelites learned it firsthand over and over again and would continue to throughout history. They rebelled, they went astray, and God would give him, give them his steadfast love, forgiveness, and redemption. It was there for them, and it is there for us. For the person who thinks you are beyond needing help, that it's unnecessary, that you are too proud to admit your need for help, it says, James says that God opposes that person. But for those who are honest, who have an honest realization of who they are, a humble understanding of our need for a savior, there is always grace to be had. When we take in and understand experientially the magnitude of the gospel, it should change us and how we interact with the world around us. Over and over, I hope you have heard that come through as we've studied James. Through the gospel, we have changed hearts, changed minds, changed hopes and desires. And James's reoccurring point throughout this letter has been, if that's true, if you have put your faith in Christ, if you have this renewed spirit, there should be evidence of it. It should be made manifest. Faith without works is dead. There should be evidence of a life change. So then what is the evidence that is manifested of a person who strives not to be a friend of the world but a friend of God, a person who lives and understands that there is more grace to be had? What are the results of this abounding grace in our lives it starts in verse 7 submit yourselves therefore to god resist the devil and he will flee from you the person who understands that there is abounding grace will submit to god that is that scary s word that's taboo and outdated and antiquated and we're not supposed to talk about it it's actually a military term means to come under in rank it's in right, the military, you got generals, privates, captains, all those things. There's an order and leadership responsibility. There's direction. This has to do with order and structure. God has laid out a plan and order for us to flourish as people. Submission is not forced. It can't be. There's a willingness to it. It is an intentional decision to set aside your own preferences and let someone else take the lead. To allow God to be in control. To lead and guide and provide and protect and direct your decisions and pursuits. Not some of them, not most of them, all of them. Trust that God knows what is best and is good. And so he will provide what is best. And he is powerful enough to do so. For the person who trusts God, the person who is willing to submit to God, with that comes the second half of verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist. Oppose. Rebel, Set oneself against. Fight. Fight for your relationship with God. Fight for your relationship with your spouse, with your kids, with your friends, with your family. Fight to be known. Fight to not have secrets. Fight to not live in darkness. We already said it. I'm going to give you a pop quiz. You guys know there are no trick questions. How much grace does God give? Verse 6. God gives More. God gives more grace. So whatever secret sin, whatever secret addiction, whatever things you are pursuing and holding on to as your own little pet project sin, there is grace for those things. The longer you hold on to them, the more distance you are putting between yourself and God and others. So fight oppose the devil put god's word in your head and heart go to god in prayer be in community with other people let them know you let them fight with you and for you and here's the interesting thing about this sentence this second half of verse seven is one of those circle it underlined it get it tattooed on your forehead kind of sentences in the bible god just told us that if you resist Satan. If you are a follower of Christ, if you are a child of God and you resist Satan, if you oppose Satan, if you put up a fight when Satan comes lurking, he will flee from you. He will run away from you. Two things about that. One, it reveals not your power, not your strength, but the Holy Spirit within you, God's power and protection and provision in you that Satan will flee from the strength of God that is in you. See, Satan and God are not yin and yang. They are not two sides of the same coin, equal in power. Satan is subject to the power and will of God. God's power in you and through you is enough to make Satan flee when you are willing to resist. But number two, if you resist Satan, he will flee. Meaning, the excuse that many of us have used before, the devil made me do it, doesn't really hold any water. It's not valid, is it? Because You know you have the power to resist. God just told you that. There are times then that that means that when you give in to temptation, when you choose sin, when you give into sin, it is not because you are a helpless victim, oh, woe is me. But rather, it is your own sinful heart and desires that need to be addressed and dealt with. It is the weeds growing in the spiritual garden that need to not just be mowed over, but dug down deep to the root of and pulled out. It's you. Remember what he said in chapter 3, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness, because what comes out of the mouth comes from what is in our hearts. So all the more, because of that, we need to submit to God and his way. We need to align ourselves with him, set ourselves in his presence and allow him to lead and guide and shape and change us so that our desires are not for that of the world and rebellion against God, but to do the will of God one who made us and knows us and loves us so much he sent his son to die for us james goes on he says you want to see what the results of this living into the abounding grace looks like look at verse eight draw near to god and he will draw near to you you go looking for god he's gonna show up you want a deeper relationship with god great he wants a deeper relationship with you and he's ready and willing to go deeper with you You want to grow in your ability to resist the devil? Draw near to God. Stay close to God. When I'm walking through a parking lot, when I'm crossing the street, when I'm in a crowded place with my kids, I keep them as close to me as possible. Why? So I can do everything possible to keep them safe. You want to be safe from the schemes and traps of the devil and your own sinful desires? Stay close to God. And when, not if, but when, you wander and get yourself in trouble and you rebel against him, then come back, confess, repent, and find that he gives how much grace? More grace. That's the instruction in the second half of the verse. Cleanse your hands, he says. Purify your hearts. Confess. Bring it to light. Look, he says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Pay attention to the visible, outward, uh, observable sins, as well as the wickedness and sin within your own heart. Just because nobody can see it, just because it's hidden away in your own heart and your own head doesn't make that sin any less important or dangerous. Bring them to light. Don't live isolated from community. Have someone or two or three that knows you, truly knows you, walks with you, fights with you, fights for you in prayer that will call you to live into the new life and hope and faith that you claim to have. It's hard. It's uncomfortable. It's a struggle. But the alternative is to miss out on the fullness of life that God has for us as individuals and as a collective church, Big C Universal Church. What James says here in the second half of verse 8 and then even going into verses 9 and 10 is that to respond to the abounding grace of God is to take our sin seriously. Confess and repent. Care Care about what you do. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. This flies in the face of everything society tells us, right? Don't cry. Don't feel bad. Don't feel your feelings. And it's not that bad. There's always somebody worse than you. So what you did isn't such a big deal. You just slipped up. You just made a mistake. We minimize. We find ways to convince ourselves our sin isn't that bad. Our sin is a direct attack on the perfect, righteous God who knows you and loves you and saved you. We can't think that our sin is just no big deal. And what happens sometimes for Christians is that it's a slippery slope because he gives more grace, right? There's always more grace to be had. There's always more forgiveness to be had. So why then should I be so brokenhearted about my sin if I know there's more grace to be had? Why did Jesus weep at Lazarus' tomb when he knew two minutes later Lazarus was going to come hopping out? Because that separation, that brokenness of a relationship, the brokenness and effects of sin breaks God's heart. Be careful to remember that the grace you have received, the grace you continue to receive, the forgiveness you have received, it came at a price. That of Jesus and him crucified. When his body was broken and his blood was spilled, he did it for you and for me and for any and all who would admit their need for help. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God who died on the cross for their sins and choose him to be their Lord and Savior. Yes, it is that easy. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone. But that doesn't mean that grace the grace that is offered to you, the redemption that is offered to you is cheap in any way. No, it costs dearly and deeply. One day, every one of us is going to stand before Jesus. And we're going to see the scars on his wrists. We're going to see the scars on his feet. We will see the marks our sin left. Because we know he kept them. When he shows up in the locked room after the resurrection, when he shows up in the locked room, the disciples can see it. They They can touch it. When Jesus shows up in Revelation 5, when they're looking for someone to be able to open the scroll, he is the lamb who is slain. We will see the evidence of our sin, what our sin did. But Jesus didn't keep the scars to embarrass us or to make us feel guilty or ashamed of what happened. The scars tell us of the love of God, that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The scars are just that. They are scars. They are healed wounds. The scars on Christ are the marks of victory over sin and death and shame, and self-righteousness, and addiction, and hate, and lust, and greed, and lies, and fear. That abounding grace, that more grace that is given, it happens because of the suffering and death of Jesus. It should cause in us a brokenheartedness over our sin, a grieving over what it cost our Savior to pay for our sins. We should have a humility before God to feel the weight of our sin and what it cost to save us. Pastor Matt Chandler says it this way, he says it is in our tears, it's in our heartbrokenness over our sin that the forgiveness and grace of this jealous God who gives more grace launches us into an orbit of joy. This type of grace penetrating this type of life brings about a a humility which God exalts. It should break our hearts. It should humble us to know the lengths that God went to because of our sin. And when we get to that place, it is there in the brokenhearted humility that God finds us, picks us up, and leads us into a new and deeper reality of relationship with him. Now, we've seen multiple times in this letter, James, give us a concept, an imperative, and then show us how it should play itself out, how it can play itself out in community. And he does that with the last two verses of this passage. Do not speak evil against one another. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother or sister speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? The person who is humble who has been renewed, who is living in light of the gospel, the person who knows and has experienced that more grace that God has to offer to us, sees their brothers and sisters not as competition or the enemy, but as family. The person will support, encourage, and build one another up. Rather than comparing your faith or maturity to theirs, rather than trying to tear down and devalue another person, we are called to be a people who have been given grace, and so we are called to be a people who show grace, more grace. We celebrate the victories of others. We delight in their success. We rejoice in their blessings. And when they fall into temptation, when they stop choosing what is good and right, when they start choosing sin, we don't throw stones We are to be a people of grace and compassion and healing. Are there consequences for our actions? Yes, of course. But we have to be a people who are driven by the grace that we have been shown. Because the truth is, we ourselves will sin. We will fall. We will fall short of the glory of God. Laying down judgment on one another is not our job. But rather, we are called to build and lift one another up. To be a people who are known for spurring on one another to good works, to be a people known to live open and honest with each other, to be a people who confess our sin, who do not live under the guilt and shame and condemnation, but rather who know there is much more grace to be had. So we don't run from God, but to him, and we show grace to one another. These things are not easy. They do not come natural. They are not normal in society. So we're going to wrap up this time and let's pray and ask God to cultivate our hearts that we might live to glorify God and enjoy him forever, to rest and enjoy the grace of God. More grace is always available to us. Let's pray. God, every one of us needs more grace. Every one of us needs more grace we choose our way over you your way we choose ourselves over you we choose when we know the right thing to do we choose what we want in the moment we try and live two different ways we try and put on a mask a couple days a week and make it look like everything's fine good we're walking with you but in actuality we are wandering in the darkness. waiting to fall into some pit. God, you have called us out of darkness and into your marvelous light. You sent your son to die for us. There's nothing we can do that is bigger and more powerful than the cross, than the grace that was given to us. God, help us to be a people who know that, who believe that, who live like we believe that. People who trust in the forgiveness, the grace of you. And as we experience it from you, help us to be a people who show it to others, who live like we have been changed, who live like the gospel matters. Like it's not just this nice, comforting thing for us, but it is an actual life-changing reality. God, there are so many of us who go through so many seasons trying to wrestle and battle with trying to play nice one way and, and make ourselves friends with the world and at the same time friends with you, and we know we can't do that. It doesn't work. Those things are incompatible. God, help us to choose you because you are life. You are joy and rest and pure and good. So much of what happens to us, so much of our struggles and exhaustion and fights and rebellion, so much of it just comes from us forgetting how good you are and how new you have made us. God, help us to remember You have called us into your family. You have made us your daughters and sons. Help us to live like that. You made us to be the lights of the world. Help us to shine brightly. To shine brightly and let people know there is more grace to be had.